According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 14. John 14. As we continue in our uh, Life of Christ series, this is episode 23. Remember, each of the segments in the Harmony of the Gospels outline... Uh, each of the segments, like the Galilean ministry, the Perean ministry, and so forth, each portion of the life of Christ has its own individual outline. And so uh, we are in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. And uh, this is episode 23 of his final week of work. starts with his triumphal entry on Palm Monday and then all the teaching and miracles and events, things that take place during his final week. Uh, we are now on Thursday night, the night on which he is betrayed. In fact, he has uh, just instructed the uh, adversary to depart. He tells Satan, what you do, do quickly. And uh, after receiving the morsel, uh, Judas departs. And it's in that context then that we have this final message, the last speech to the apostles and the intercessory prayer that he offers. The last speech Basically, it's going to take us from the end of chapter 13 all the way down to chapter 16. And then the uh, prayer that's found in John 17, uh, basically the entire chapter, verses uh, 1 through 26. All right. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. This is what he's been doing. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. We ought to start embracing these as the I will promises to us, to the church. And we understand the language of I will because it's the language of covenant. And we have the I will language that's featured in the Abrahamic covenant. For example, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. We have the I will language as it relates to God's unconditional promises to Israel. We understand those. Well, here is one specifically to us, to the church. I will come again. I will receive you to myself that where I am in heaven in my father's house, preparing these dwelling places where I am there, you may be also. This is not the second advent of Jesus Christ where he's going to come and return to Jerusalem and conquer the the uh, forces of, of evil and, and set up the Davidic throne and end the tribulation and establish the millennial kingdom. This, this message has nothing to do with second advent. This message is for him coming to receive his bride and take the church home to heaven. All right. Now, he can't use all that vocabulary and he can't use those specific terms yet because the church is still a mystery. And we understand that. All right. Well, here's where we are. John 14 Verses uh, 1 through 6. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of doctrine and prepared for this class today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We rejoice, Father, that once again on this day, in your grace, we have the opportunity to come together to study to show ourselves approved. We ask, Father, that you would set aside distractions, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. I thank you, Father, that the comprehension of your truth does not depend on, on anything human. It's not how smart we are to figure these things out. It's how faithful you are 
to lead us, to guide us, to teach us. We thank You for the Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us, Father, to, to teach us all things, even the deep things of God. So, Father, be at work today. Open our minds and our hearts to the truth of Your Word. Protect us, Father. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen. All right. As far as our outline goes, it is important under point one that you understand that the points of study from John 13, verses 31 through 38, should be reviewed. They should be reviewed. It's been a while since we've been in John 13. Um, but I would encourage you to review all of those points of study, not just the three quick ones that I included here on this slide. But the points of study from John 13, 31 through 38, should be reviewed before proceeding to John 14 uh, and following. Uh, we lose a little bit of our context when we do a harmony of the Gospels like we're doing because we went from John 13, we went over to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We were dealing with other issues related to communion, related to, um, to other things, things that the Gospel of John doesn't get into. The Gospel of John immediately follows chapter 13 with chapter 14. And so in the context of this book, we don't want to lose that. Uh, if we do, we end up hurting ourselves in our comprehension of, of this doctrine. So... Uh, point one in the outline, the points of study from John 13 should be reviewed. And here they are. Not all of them, but just three quick uh, ideas. First of all, the obedience of Jesus Christ. Subpoint A, the obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God the Father establishes glory. Okay? And we gave a whole hour on this, on this immediate glory. But it, it, it came about because Jesus Christ was obedient to the will of God the Father. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Because He let the traitor leave the upper room. He could have killed Judas right then and there. I, I would have done it. I would have turned him into a frog or something, right? If I, if I had God's power and knew that He was about to betray me, I mean, who, who likes betrayal? See? But He was obedient to God the Father. And he allows Judas to depart the upper room to go get the soldiers that are, going to go, that are going to arrest him this night. So the obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God the Father establishes the glorification of the Son of Man and the glorification of God the Father in Christ. In Christ. And you can pick up on it here in verse 31 of John 13. It says, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. In Him. And so you can just underline that in your Bibles if you know you want to. Some people don't write in their Bibles, and I, okay, I'm fine with that. But if you do write in your Bible and you underline and you highlight things, that's great. Um, just mark that in Him and understand that you and I have an advantage given that we have the complete New Testament. We have hindsight. We have mystery doctrine revealed. We have the book of Ephesians. We understand what it means to be in Christ. And all the doctrine of positional truth related to the church age in Christ. Peter and James and these disciples here tonight, they don't have any of that. They're not going to have any of that this night. And so when Jesus says that the Father is glorified in Him, we have to identify that only with our hindsight and our context of the New Testament. Likewise, in verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. This is the second thing we want to recognize is that we have immediate glory. We gave you uh, some notes and some, some ideas about immediate glory back when we taught this uh, chapter. 
immediate glory to God the Father and God the Son transpires when the Son departs to be with the Father. When those in Christ await, they're, they're following the Son to the Father. We're the ones, we're, we're, we're living on this earth waiting to follow Jesus to heaven. And what we do here produces immediate glory. It's different now in the church age than it was in the Old Testament. You say, well, didn't David produce an immediate glory? No, he didn't. When David had a victory over Goliath, didn't that produce an immediate glory? No, it didn't. Not the way we do today. David wasn't operating in the heavenly places. David wasn't operating united to Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God the Father in power and great glory. We do. Huge difference. When, when Moses parted the Red Sea, did that glorify God? Not with the immediate glory that we glorify God, you understand. Everything in the Old Testament, by the way, was looking forward to a future glory. We have immediate glory. Huge differences. All right, so the Son is departing to be with the Father. And uh, we're going to follow. We're going to follow. Verse 33 says, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now he told the Pharisees that because they were unbelievers. And he said he was going to heaven and, and they're never going to be there. But now he's telling Peter and, and the disciples, he's telling them that they can't come either. And just a few verses down, you see in verse 36, what he means is, not yet. Not yet. You will follow later. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. That uh, the church age is an age of the body of Christ waiting to finish our course and then absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. We're going home as soon as our pilgrimage here on this earth is, is complete. So Israel couldn't operate like this, like we can. The Gentiles couldn't operate like this, like we can. Even the angels couldn't operate like this, like we can. We are the body and bride of Jesus Christ, baptized into union with Christ. Important that we identify with that. And so these are, these are the, the, the clues that we have in the text. That we, we have a text-based reason for understanding that there is something different happening here in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. There is something different happening here, and we have to handle it differently because the text demands that we handle it differently. This is why we can say confidently that Matthew 24 and 25, all of it discourse is not for the church, it's for Israel. But we've got to do something different here because the text demands it. Thirdly then, this new condition, the new conditions of immediate glory demand a new commandment. The commandment is reciprocal love, that you love one another. A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you. This was not given to Israel. This was not given to the Gentiles. Not given to the angels. This is the ecclesiastical commandment for the body of Christ. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you, if you exercise agape love one to another. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This Again, we have the book of Ephesians to go right with this. That we're to be imitators of God as beloved children, as, God, as Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for us. We too are to have this sacrificial, unconditional integrity, agape love. 
All right. In any event, I'm hoping that you're equipped with this to understand that we handle John 13 through 17 as church age doctrine, even though we're not yet in the church age until Acts chapter 2. Jesus, on the night in which he's betrayed, is giving them prophetically, giving them things that they're not going to understand this night. But they will understand once the Holy Spirit descends and once Pentecost uh, begins the church. Secondly, the dispensation of angels, man and Israel could never envision a stewardship with immediate glory to the Father. I said that a few moments ago. Job never envisioned this. Moses never envisioned this. David never envisioned this. Immediate glory. Everything was all future glory. They all looked forward to a promised glory. But we have immediate glory. And in fact, what we bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. What we loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. Much of what we uh, experience here is a reflection of what Jesus Christ has already decreed as head of the church. We can appreciate that. Immediate glory. It is important to note, I'm going quickly, but this is just uh, for the benefit of folks that weren't here prior to today. Um, it is important to note Jesus Christ does not violate the mystery of the church. No Old Testament prophet saw the church. Isaiah didn't see it. Jeremiah didn't see it. Ezekiel didn't see it. And Jesus is not violating mystery. Nowhere in here does Jesus say, by the way, this is a new, uh, a new dispensation. But he hints at it and he's hinted at it before. He told Peter, he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And Peter should have said, well, what do you mean? What's that? <laughs> All right. He delivers this last speech and in intercessory prayer to bewildered disciples who would not comprehend any of it until the unveiled mystery enables them to do so. Even when he promises, and we're going to see here very shortly, he says, I'm about to send you the Holy Spirit. They're not even going to understand that until they get the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit that's going to enable them to understand these church age doctrines that he's starting to give to them here. You'll, you'll spot that down in verse 16 of, uh, of chapter 14 there. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. And it's the spirit of truth that's going to help them finally make sense of everything he's saying here in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. All right. Then point three. The first doctrine which uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of the rapture. The first doctrine which uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of the rapture. And so the first thing he tells them here, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. If you're going through a, a circumstance of testing, if your heart is troubled at the moment, here's a doctrine that will quiet your hearts, the doctrine of the rapture. It's the promise that any day, maybe even today, that trumpet's going to sound and we're gone. We are absolutely out of here. As the uh, Mosey Lister song says, when, when I hear that trumpet sound, my feet won't stay on the ground. Right? Goodbye, world, goodbye. I love that song. Now, and it's, uh, it is the first one that's listed here. We will deal with uh, this and then we'll move on to point four and start breaking down the second doctrine. But you believe in God, believe also in me. Rapture doctrine is a faith application. It is a faith application in the glorified Father and Son. We hold to the rapture because we know that God the Father is faithful. We know that God the Son is faithful. They're going to fulfill what they promised. 
The rapture doctrine is a faith application in the glorified Father and Son. And it keeps the church member's heart from being troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You think Jesus is going to fail to accomplish the Father's will? You think the Father's going to fail to provide a bride for his son? And you think the, the son is going to fail to go fetch that bride when the Father says, go get her? No, neither one is going to fail. The rapture is just as secure as, as the, the, the faithfulness of God the Father and the faithfulness of God the Son. In other words, it's absolutely guaranteed. And that should be a comfort for us. All right. Secondly, the third heaven, this is point B, presently and already contains many dwelling places. There already are heavenly dwelling places, but there remains a place not yet prepared. There remains a place not yet prepared. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. God the Father already has, we don't know how many, thousands, millions. How many, how many believers were there from Adam to Pentecost, right? I mean, hundreds, thousands, millions, we don't know. But however many there were, there are dwelling places prepared. Manai. Manai Palai, we're told. Many dwelling places. Condos, I'm calling them. I'm calling these the uh, Jewish and Gentile condos in the Father's house. These are their residences. These are their rooms that are prepared. Okay, you know, think of a, a, a medieval castle and the, the travelers arrive and they're greeted at the in the front courtyard by the the uh, servants. And you've got servants that will take the horses over to the stables and you've got footmen that will take the baggage into the into the castle. And you get inside there and there's a steward waiting there that will show you to your rooms. A room has been prepared for you and, and you're brought into the room and you've got chamber servants in the room and, and they're there, you know, for the chamber pots. And I, I watch too many movies. I, you know, I like sword fights and anything, uh, anything medieval is, is awesome in my book. Well, in the Father's house, these rooms are already prepared. But he doesn't say, in my Father's house are many dwelling places so you'll have a spot waiting for you when you get there. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, but you don't have one yet. You don't have one yet. That's why I have to go first. And I have to prepare your dwelling place for when you get there. And the residency for the bride is different than any other residence that's already there. The Father prepared everything else. Jesus is preparing this. All right. I go to prepare a place for you. We are going to reside someplace totally unique. Someplace that would not be appropriate for the uh, Gentiles and Jews that have um, already have a place prepared. So that's point C. Jesus anticipated a work of preparation for a place not yet in existence for Jesus' disciples. They don't have a place yet. He has to go prepare it. It's like when he told Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. That's future. The church didn't exist at the time. He made that statement in Matthew 16. That's why it's, it's so ridiculous that people try to say, well, the church was around in the Old Testament. It was not. Jesus said it wasn't here yet. He said, I will build my church, yet future. Here he says, I will prepare a place for you, yet future. It doesn't exist at the time that he's speaking this message to his disciples. 
So Jesus anticipated a work of preparation for a place not yet in existence for Jesus' disciples. Now, what's, what's different about these guys than any of the other guys that have come before? They are believers in Jesus Christ. And when, when uh, Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit descends, they're going to become the first members of the body of Christ, the first members of the church. That's what sets them apart. Now, what I find interesting is verses 4 through 6. And here's new material. We haven't gotten this far yet. So let me, I can kind of slow down and take our time. So that where I am, there you may be also. There you may be also. So where has Jesus been for 2,000 years now? He's been in heaven. He's not been in Jerusalem. He's been in heaven. Okay? People that try to combine the rapture with the second advent try to say that, well, he comes, we launch up into the air, we meet him in the clouds, and then we land back in Jerusalem. That just doesn't work. This passage doesn't allow for that. He has to take us where he's been. And he's been in heaven, in the Father's house, preparing our, preparing our place. All right. Now, he says in verse 4, You know the way where I am going. You know the way where I am going. And this is remarkable because very quickly he's going to talk about what they don't know. Uh, and, and very quickly we're going to be down in verses 7. And following where he talks about what they don't know. They don't know him intimately or his father. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father. Here's what they don't know. And uh, verse 8, verse 9, he says, you don't know the father. He tells them what they don't know. But in verse 4, he convicts them of what they do know. You do know the way where I'm going. And Thomas says, no, we don't. Okay. He says, you know, all y'all know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So Jesus says you do, and Philip says we don't. So who's lying? Is Jesus lying? <laughs> Is Philip lying? So point D. Jesus' disciples may not want to admit what they know. I think this is what's happening here. Jesus' disciples may not want to admit what they know, but they do know where he is going and the way to get there. They do know where he's going. He's going to his father's house. That's where he came from. That's where he's going. And they know the way to get there is he has to die. And the way that we're going to get there is we have to die. No other way to get to heaven. Unless, as Jesus says here, he comes back and takes us there without dying. So Jesus' disciples may not want to admit what they know, but they do know where he is going and the way to get there. You know, when you have the proper attitude related to eternal life and faith in Christ and where we're going when we die, it takes the sting out of death. And we see a loved one that... that uh, <laughs> You know, is there sadness, of course? Of course there's sadness. But there's also joy. Thankful when, when a, a brother uh, and a sister, when their time of suffering is over, the Lord takes them home. <laughs> Aren't you thankful? I mean, sure, you're sad that they've gone, but that's only your sadness. That's not their sadness. It's their joy to be gone. And we ought to be able to share in their joy that they have that they're gone. 
in any event. I, I find it remarkable where Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas says, no, we don't. <laughs> you know, talk about get behind me, Satan. You know, this is like Jesus saying, I got to go to the cross. And Peter says, may it never be. You're just contradicting the God of the universe who cannot lie. If he says, you know, how dare you say, no, I don't know. All right. And that's why I think what happens here, and I believe it's not only appropriate in this context, but it's also consistent with what we see elsewhere in the scriptures, is we see uh, believers not want to admit what they know to be true. We see Balaam, he knows what the answer is, but he says, well, let me go back and ask again. Maybe I'll get a different answer this time. Or we see David, he knows what the answer is, but he's, he wants what he wants anyway. Or we see Jacob, he you know, married the wrong girl, but he's going to insist on getting what he wants anyway. Even if it means he's got to become a polygamist to have two wives. Um, but you and I get into more trouble <laughs> when we know what God's will is and we act like we don't. We say, oh, well, I'm just not under conviction. You lie, you lie, you lie. And Jesus is not letting Philip get away with this. I'm sorry, not Philip, Thomas. Thomas. Philip's in verse 8. You know, it's remarkable as you, as you glance at this. We've got all of these. We've got... You know, Peter in 1336 saying, Lord, where are you going? And, and you got Thomas in 145 saying, we don't know where you're going. And Philip saying, Lord, show us the Father. And then you get Judas, not Iscariot in uh, 1422. And it's, uh, you can just tell throughout this whole chapter here, these, this, these two chapters, they're bewildered. They don't have a clue of what he's telling them. And everything he tells them he answers one question and that sparks more questions. That, that itself also, I think, helps us to, to recognize that this is, this is not going to be understood until they get the Holy Spirit, until they're in the church. Only then will they have a full appreciation for the upper room discourse, for the, the last speech to the disciples and the intercessory prayer. All right. They may not want to admit what they know, but they do know where he's going and they know the way to get there. And, you know, you think about it, uh, I don't think that's that different from believers today. Uh, how many Christians do you know that um, the idea of death and heaven and that, I mean, yeah, they're happy to be saved. And, and clearly they don't want to go to hell when they die. But beyond that, are they really eager to be absent from the body and face to face with the Lord? Or are they having too much fun while they're here? <laughs> are they are they creating attachments to this world? Uh, are they not walking in a manner worthy of the grace with which they've been saved? And so they know that when they are face to face with the Lord, they're not going to hear well done, good and faithful servant. Well, if that's the if that's the uh, condition of your Christian walk, uh, I wouldn't be too eager to get there either. <laughs> OK, I'd want to I'd want to repent here and now and, and, and start walking right. All right. Now, the second doctrine, new material, point four. The second doctrine, which uniquely applies to the church, is the doctrine of greater works. So first thing, rapture. Second thing, greater works. And it's going to actually be introduced here. It's going to truly be unfolded in John 15 with I am the vine. 
and how it is that we abide in Christ and how it is that we bear much fruit. But it gets introduced here. The second doctrine which uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of greater works. So you might take this outline and you might start thinking, you know what, this this upper room discourse here, when Jesus was preparing his disciples on the night he was arrested, he's preparing them for what they're going to need in the coming church age. We ought to view this as this could be a good outline for us. What is our foundation? What is it that a new believer needs the, the first day after they're saved? We ought to start teaching about the rapture. We ought to start teaching them about the imminent return of Christ, to live day by day, to live moment by moment. And then we ought to start impressing upon them the absolute urgent necessity to bear fruit, that it's not a spectator sport. We're participants in this angelic conflict. We have work to do. We have fruit to bear. We're to abide in Christ. We're to abide in the Father. We're to bear much fruit so as to prove to be His disciples. All right? And as I say, we get an introduction to it here in 7 through 14. It's going to get its own chapter in John 15 with I am the vine, you are the branches. We're expected to bear fruit. Now, I say it's unique to the church, uh, you know, because it's different than what Israel was expected to do. It's different than what Gentiles were expected to do. You say, well, weren't they expected to bear fruit? Not like us. They had work assignments, sure. They were saved in the good works prepared beforehand that they should walk in them, just as we're saved in the good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But here's the difference. Ours are reflections of God the Father and God the Son abiding in us. They didn't have that. Ours are earthly reflections of a heavenly reality. They didn't have that. What they did was in the earthly realm, uh, there's, there's differences that are to be drawn, and hopefully you'll, you'll start to see that as we see the nature of this. Now, Verse 7, he starts off telling them what they do not know. All right. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Notice the from now on nature of this. This couldn't have been applied before. Israel never could have lived this. The Gentiles never could have lived this. Even his closest disciples, they walked with him for three and a half years. And they still don't know him the way that church age believers can know Jesus Christ and should know Jesus Christ. They did not have a church age appreciation for Jesus Christ. There was no way for them to do so. And through him to have a church age uh, intimacy with God the Father. There's no way that an Old Testament believer could do that. All right. See, all of this, I think, all of this is the wonderful unfolding of verse (laughs) 6, which you'll notice I haven't read yet. Okay. Philip says, oh, we we don't know the way. And, John's, and Jesus says, yes, you do. Not Philip, Thomas. I keep beating up on Philip. Thomas. Okay? He says, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's him. It's about our faith in Christ. It's the only way to be with the Father. Now, this is true in terms of dying and going to heaven, but it's also true today before we're dead. How do I approach the Father? How do I go to the Father in prayer? No man comes to the Father but by me. Yeah, my prayers are in Jesus' name. Jesus, the apostle and a high priest of my confession, it's through Jesus that I have access to the heavenly places in Christ. It's through Jesus that I have this confidence to approach. Okay, Hebrews 10, if you're not familiar with it. I don't, I don't go to the Father in my own name. I don't go to the Father each morning in prayer and say, Hello, Father, glad you're so impressed with me. Here's what I want you to do today. 
No. He is not impressed with me. Never has been, never will be. But His beloved Son, that's the one whom He loves. And I'm in Him. See? No man comes to the Father but through me. I am the Hadas, the Aletheia, and the Zoe. i got two daughters right here in this verse. <laughs> okay? Sharon didn't think Hadas was a very feminine name for... No, I agree. No, I wouldn't want a daughter named Hadas. But Aletheia and Zoe, there they are. No one comes to the Father but through me. And this is the way. This is the way. This is the truth. Anything that denies this is a lie from the pit of hell. And this is the only provision for Zoe life. Christ is. The, there's only there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. All right. So what are these greater works? Let's, let's get down here seven and following. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. It's a from now on message. Could not apply to Israel, only applies to the church. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough. It is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. Now, we're going to do some work with this because he's not telling Philip that he's an unbeliever. All right. And, and there's knowing and then there's knowing and then there's knowing. We've got to understand in context what's he talking about here. And there's, of course, believing. And, and they're all believers. Every single one of them is a believer except the traitor and he already left. So he's talking to the 11 of these guys. They're all saved. But he says, you don't know me with this intimate knowing of the father and the son that we're going to know in the church age. Okay. Hope that makes sense. I'm going to expand on it here in, in just a moment. It's like the difference between knowing about somebody or knowing who they are and, act, and absolutely knowing them thoroughly, intimately, completely. Knowing them um, maybe even as well as you know yourself or better than you know yourself in some respects. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us, the Father. Well, the truth is they have not seen Him in the way that we will as part of the church. Okay? No Old Testament believer could. But New Testament believers can and do. You understand. That's why there's a difference. It's a from now on message. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now we're going to spend some time on this. And if your head spins, that's fine. I'm going to spend this week and next week and however long it takes. I'm going to spend some time on this because this is not uh, believe that Jesus died for your sins. This is believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's a different subject. That's a different topic. And this is something that we have to understand if we're going to understand the, the chain of events that allows us to believe anything. How do I believe anything that I do believe? Well, first, got to know it. And then i got to believe it. All right? After I've been persuaded. Some of the things... Uh, I think we're going to be very blessed by what uh, Glenn Carnegie is giving us in Hebrews. And that, I think that uh, that's going to tie in very well here. All right. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. The Father abiding in me does His works. Now, to an Old Testament Gentile, that's just lunacy. To an Old Testament Jew, it's even more lunacy. 
There is, you know, the Gentile at least can say, well, I've never heard of that before. But a, Gen- a Jew would say, I've never heard that before. And I've got a Hebrew canon of scripture that doesn't say a thing about any of this. <laughs> okay. You and I, of course, have a New Testament. We have mystery doctrine. We, ha- we understand that it's God who's at work in you, both the will and the do of his good pleasure. It doesn't strike us as odd at all. We're, we look at this and go, well, yeah. Okay. And so much of what we're going to do in this, in these, all these chapters, 13, 14, all the way through 17, we're going to have to, for the moment, set aside our church age doctrine and try to put ourselves in a mentality that says, well, what if I don't know this yet? What if I don't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What if I don't know yet about union with Christ? What if I don't know yet about abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in me? All right. And, and I think the better we're able to do that, we're going to see how Unbelievable these chapters are. Earth shattering. Alright. So believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He says, uh, first of all, he says that they don't. In, in, or he asks in verse 10, do you not believe? And in verse 11 he says, believe. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. You're not believing in nothing. You've got evidence. There's reasons to believe. Faith is a rational exercise. It's the exercise of of reason. It's a a rational exercise. There is evidence. There is an object in which to place your trust. So believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Now, you and I are going to do greater works than what Jesus accomplished in his first advent incarnation. Do you believe that? Now, we're not talking about going to the cross and redeeming humanity, okay? We're talking about what he did in his earthly ministry as the Father worked in and through him. The Father works in and through us. But more than that, We've got the Son who works in and through us. So we've got double what Christ ever had. Plus, we've got the Holy Spirit. All right, which was not a universal indwelling feature of the dispensation of Israel. Of course, we're going to do greater works. And we're going to do so globally in every country, in every language. The impact of Christ's ministry is pretty limited geographically, historically. All right, you realize everybody in this room has traveled further than Jesus ever did. In his earthly walk. Every single one of us in this room has traveled further than Jesus ever did. All right. So uh, you will do greater works than these. uh, He will do also and greater works than these. He will do because I go to the father with a glorified Christ seated at the father's right hand. You and I have greater works to achieve and we can do so because our intercessors in heaven. All right, we have an accuser, but we've got a defender. We need to learn how to truly embrace how that advocate provision works in our life day by day. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if he asks me anything in my name, I will do it. Here we're asking Jesus as head of the church. We're asking him as, as our advocate. We're asking him as our head. All right, so this is what we're looking at. First of all, Subpoint A. The incarnation ministry of Jesus Christ 
did not allow even His closest disciples to know Him or to know the Father. That's what it says in verse 7. You don't know Me. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father. But you don't. So you don't. This is the, this is the, the plain language of verse 7. They don't know Him like we know Him. They don't know Him in the, the full intimacy of what happens between a, a bride and her husband. We do. This is what He's trying to share with them. What they're going to have coming up in the pending church age. Spiritual intimacy is only possible from now on. As this intimacy requires knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Spiritual intimacy is only possible from now on as this intimacy requires knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 and Philippians 3.10. If you're not familiar with those, we'll see them here in a moment. You know, and, and just think about, I mean, this is true in any relationship. This is true in any, uh, with anybody you know, you can, you can illustrate this and you can consider this. You can ask yourself, how well do you know them and how do you know them and do you truly know them? And what does it take to truly know a person? Okay? It requires the fellowship of suffering. It requires the knitting together of souls. And, um, you know, you think about who you know and who you truly know. A lot of this, by the way, if you want to review, we taught in the in basics in, uh, you know, the I recommended J.I. Packer in the in his book, Knowing God. OK, um, you know, it's, it's not enough to know about him. You know, God has righteousness and sovereignty and love and eternal life. And I know about God and he created all things. I know things about him. I know what he's done. I know what he's like. But you can know what he's like and not know him. I know what President Obama's like. I'd recognize him if he walked in the room, but I, I don't know him. He doesn't know me. I've never met him. All right. I, I know things about him. A lot of things I don't know about him. <laughs> All right. Um, but I don't know him. I know all of you in this room to one degree or another, but there's nobody in this room I know as well as I know Sharon. I mean, it just makes sense, right? You talk about the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. When you talk about what, how you come to know someone, truly know them, who they are, how they think, what they feel, what, um, you know, where you don't even have to ask them a question because you know how they're going to answer the question ahead of time. See? And the closer you are in family relationship, the better you know them. You know, you know your parents better than you know your neighbor. You know your wife better than you know your parents. See, we're talking about the normal circumstances of things. Spiritual intimacy, the, the knowing Christ when he says, you don't know me. I mean, they know who he is. Uh, he, in, in, what, what was the exercise there? Who do the people think I am? And all the goofy answers. And then who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So they knew that. But here, this is something different. He says, you don't know me. You don't know me. Okay? Not truly. Not intimately. Not 
in the in the comprehensive way that the body of Christ does our stewardship with an Old Testament and a New Testament and the indwelling Christ within each one of us. All right. First Corinthians two two. see, I don't think it's possible until he's crucified until he's crucified and raised again. That we have the intimacy with the one who died and rose again on our behalf. Until he does that, it's not possible for us to know him the way that we know him now. An Old Testament believer, all he could do was know the coming Messiah, the one who would deliver him from death. We know the one who died that we might live. And so we have the greater intimacy. 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the, the motivation in all our intimacy with our Savior. Not just our risen Savior, but He's crucified. He gave Himself in my place. Philippians 3.10 Philippians 3.10 I want to lay hold of something here. And um, Paul talks about his background and his credentials and things that we might brag about or boast in. In verse 7 he says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You say, well, come on. I mean, don't you know him by now? See, this is the thing. The, the, the true knowing that takes all your life. You know more intimately than you knew last year, than the year before, than the year before that, the year before that. How well did you know your wife the day you married her? Okay. I should turn it around because I have more women than men here this morning. Right? But how well did you know your husband, your wife, your spouse? I mean, the day you married them, you, I hope you knew them fairly well. Okay, you were at least acquainted with them. But you, you probably knew them more than that. But then how well did you know them after a year, after two years, after 20 years? Okay, we got 21 coming up here at the end of this month. How, how well do you know them now? See, ideally, you never stop knowing more and more and more and more. Better and better and better and better. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's been an apostle for 20 years. He knows the Lord. All right. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I want to know him more. And whatever it is in my life that detracts from Bible class, that detracts from, from studying the word of God, from growing in the grace of knowledge, if it hinders my, my growth, I don't want it. I do not want it. And so um, it says in verse 9, may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And this is where believers draw the line and say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm happy to be saved. I'm glad I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But 
fellowship of sufferings? No thanks. Conformable to his death? No thanks. Why should I suffer? <laughs> right? I should be happy. I deserve to be happy. And that's our whole uh, culture today. The idolatry of self-esteem and self-fulfillment and self-happiness and everything else. And that's why you know men leave their wives. They say, well, I, I deserve to be happy. She's not making me happy. What about the fellowship of his sufferings being conformable to his death? What about running with endurance the race that's set before you? What, if, what, what about saying, not my will, but thine be done? This is what we're called to do. And just, who do you think you are anyway? If Christ suffered, why do you think you're exempt? How dare you? You realize that? Is a disciple above his master, uh, above his teacher, a slave above his master? Come on. Look what our Savior had to go through. He had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. And you think you're somehow exempt? Not hardly. All right. So, and this is how we know. This is how we know. And you think about it. You can illustrate this. Think about the, 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 the toughest things you've ever gone through with your spouse. Okay? I had, a, I had an aunt, or I had an uncle. I had both. <laughs> an aunt and an uncle. My mother will tell you who they were. They were her aunt and uncle, actually. My great aunt and uncle. And he, he killed his daughter. He, he drove over her accidentally in a car, backing out of their garage. Can you imagine? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard enough when any child dies, but when you're the cause of it, you're the, the driver behind the wheel. And, uh, you know, you go, through, you go through hell. And the Lord's faithful, and He brings you through, and He strengthens you, and you, you walk in the light, and you, you, you just embrace grace. And, you, and, and it's not easy. Of course it's not easy. Of course it's not easy. And they were married. I don't know, my mother will tell the story better than I can. They were married forever. And then he went to heaven. And, and, um, and uh, we, we talked after he was in heaven. And she, um, she couldn't understand marriages today and why people just were so quick to divorce and so quick to throw it all away and so quick to give up on one another and things. Saying, well, based on her experience and how the Lord sustained them, you understand what we're talking about. You understand how these things can be forged. Okay? In any event, the, the kind of intimacy, the spiritual intimacy, wasn't possible in the Old Testament. Believers, Old Testament believers, would never know. They could anticipate a coming Messiah who would deliver them, but they could not experience the reality of the Christ who died for them. Not like we can. Spiritual, this kind of spiritual intimacy is only possible from now on as this intimacy requires knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And it's not that Jesus loved me so much that He went to the cross. That's part of it, but it's more than that. It's that Jesus loved the Father so much that He obeyed the Father to die on the cross for my sins. Let's face it, I'm not lovable. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Not because the world was lovable. It comes down to the Father and the Son and their love for one another, their glory for one another. That's why we're saved. So this intimacy is only possible. The only, an Old Testament saint cannot know the Father like you and I can because of the love of Jesus Christ for the Father and the love of the Father for Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, Philip requested a demonstration of the Father. 
He's going to get one. He's going to get one. But what Jesus says is you've already had it. And you're going to require the Holy Spirit to make it clear to you, but you've been watching me for the last three and a half years. And he who has seen me has seen the Father. So point B, Philip requested a demonstration of the Father. John 14, 8. Show me. And Jesus says, I already have. <laughs> what have I been doing all this time? <laughs> have I been with you so long? What we have here, it's interesting, we have here Deknumi, Aorist Active Imperative of Deknumi, D-E-I-K-N-U-M-I, Deknumi, 1166 is the strongest concordance number. It's a worthwhile word study. Uh, 30, 30 times. We won't look at all 30, but the, the uses in the Gospels are interesting. We've seen it already on a number of occasions, and we will see it again in the, in, uh, when he shows them his hands and his feet after the resurrection, that it's really him. He shows them his hands and his feet and shows them the, the nail prints and so forth. Um, and, I, and I find this uh, good in our, in our applications because it's not... Um, we're not expected to believe nothing. We're not expected to have a blind faith. That the Father is in the business of showing. And that uh, that's why He creates. And that's why He works. And that's why He reveals. He is a revealer. He is a communicator. We know if we know nothing else about our God, we know that He exists and we know that He's a communicator. See? And so all of creation communicates. And God reveals Himself. And, and this is what happens here. And in our faith... In our faith that God reveals Himself and we're not expected to believe in nothing unto eternal life. We believe in Christ unto eternal life. See? And so it's interesting when the, the idea of show me is not rebuked, it's only um, lamented. If I can, uh, if I'm fair in making that statement. Philip says, show us the Father and it is enough for us. It is sufficient. It is satisfying. We'll be content. And uh, this isn't really a rebuke on Jesus' part. He's not chewing out Philip, but he's just kind of in a sense of wonderment. Jesus is, is it's incredible to him. Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is what he's been doing. But it, it cannot be comprehended until the church age. That's why I keep saying this is something new. This from, from now on approach. From now on, you know him and have seen him. It's only with the crucified and risen Savior, with the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's only with the uh, perspective of the New Testament. It's only the church that's going to have this perspective. All right, so this verb, dake knew me. Uh, let's look at some of these other examples. It gives us a flavor of this. Uh, but it's, it's a verb for demonstration. It's a verb to, uh, to point out, to show, to make known. Um, and it, it is rather um, causative. It causes the person to understand what's being demonstrated. Luke 4, 5. This is in the temptation. And Satan uh, led Jesus up and... Uh, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'm not sure how he did it. But in a single moment of time, Satan gave Jesus a panorama view 
of, of all, I think, not only all the kingdoms of the present world, but all the kingdoms past, present, future, the entire scope of, of human glory. He led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. It was handed over to him when Adam abdicated and surrendered his stewardship. So there's the demonstration. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So how, you know, things can be shown in a lot of ways. You can show verbally, you can show non-verbally. You can show in visions, you can show in actions. The verb itself is just a general verb to show, and it doesn't stipulate the manner in which something is shown. Jesus showed the Father in His life, in His character, in His message, in, in everything about Him. He was showing the Father. He was showing the Father. <laughs> Somebody even made a joke about B3 over in Kiev the other day that uh, they've... Uh, seen him they've seen me they've seen bob the son they've seen bob the father something like that all right still in luke luke 20 24 i do acknowledge there's a resemblance yeah um here's where they're trying to trick him into a tax question and he says uh knew me show me a denarius Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Well, it's got Caesar's picture on it. Okay, well, it's got to be his then, right? <laughs> I love this. Jesus left him so. They kept trying to trap him, and he was brilliant. I love this. Okay. Um, chapter 22 and verse 12. Remember in some of the, uh, some of the cloak and dagger that took place. At the beginning of this night, Jesus didn't know where his dinner was going to be. He had no, he didn't know. And none of the disciples knew, especially Judas. Judas wasn't able to organize an ambush because he didn't know where they were going to be. Jesus didn't know where they were going to be. But he said, go to the gate and follow a guy with a water pitcher there and, and he'll take you to a house and you enter into the house where he went and say to the owner of the house, uh, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will take new me. He will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. So there's our verb. He will show me. He will show you. And so then they would know. These two disciples would know. Nobody else would know. Jesus wouldn't know. Judas wouldn't know. And Jesus was able to have the dinner that night without fear of being arrested until he uh, tells Judas, all right, what you do, do quickly. And out the room he goes. Uh, 2440. And uh, this is after the, uh, I says, see my hands and my feet. See, they were all, he says, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see. And we're going to, we're going to focus on this because earlier he wouldn't let Mary touch him. He says, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my father, but here he welcomes him. He says, touch me, see. I believe there was an ascension in between there. But see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed, there it is, Dick knew me. He showed them his hands 
and his feet. And then he sat down and he ate with them. I'm looking forward to this. You know, heaven's going to have a lot of eating and a lot of drinking. There's going to be new wine and we'll be in resurrected bodies and we can't get fat and we can't get drunk and it's going to be, it's going to be good. All right. Now, those were all in Luke. Luke was very fond of that term, uh, but John also makes use of it. John 5 and verse 20. And this one here, not only is it a common, is it a use of the term, but it is a parallel use to uh, where we are in John 14. And I just looked at the clock. I am over time. How did that happen? John 5.20. Wow. Well, then we're going to have to come back to this. Uh, John 5.19 says, Therefore Jesus answered was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Now, we're going to be imitators of that in our church age, but let's continue here. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. That's why I say it's going to connect to us in our application. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Not only do we have a use of deknumi for show, but we also have the promise of greater works. And this is why we're going to have to connect this with John 14 and understand how this happens. What are the greater works that the Son's going to do? What are the greater works that we're going to do? And how is this going to connect in our church age? So, um, yeah. All right. Well, remind me next week. We'll pick up on this here in John 5, John 10. John 14 and John 20, the last uses of Deconomy here that will connect. All right? 11.02, I owe you two minutes next week. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. Uh, Father, thank you. Your love to your Son caused you to show, what, uh, to show your work. And here we are, Father. We're your sons. We're your daughters. And you show us. And we have work to do. And that's the work that you're doing in and through us for your good pleasure. This is the work that you continue to show your son who's in us, Father. And I pray we would understand how it's you and your son and your son in you and and us in you. Father, uh, teach us what these abiding ministries are like. And Father, teach us how we can embrace this intimacy. Father, uh, the, the, uh, the deepest intimacy we recognize here in, in earthly life is the one man, one woman intimacy of marriage. And that's a picture we understand. But teach us, Father, through that picture how this intimacy with you is just so much more, infinitely more. So, Father, open our eyes to this understanding. We've got a good introduction to it today, but there's so much more to learn. Open our eyes and give us the comprehension. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.